Hello everyone, welcome again to another episode of the More You Look podcast. This is going to be the final episode of the year. As you can see, I'm in my Christmas jumper. And uh, today we have a very important guest. Is a friend of mine, is a colleague of mine, is um, an advanced clinical practitioner. Also, he has MBE from the Royal Family for his uh, services to the NHS. Uh, welcome to the show, Chibu. Thank you. How are you today? I am wonderful, thank you. Lovely. It's very, very lovely, lovely to have you here. And uh, I won't bother asking you how you're spending your December because we mostly spend it at work anyway. Of course. <laughs> Plus, we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic. True. That is true. Um, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Okay. As you can see, uh, born in India. I completed my education, including my nursing education from India, from one of the prestigious universities in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, came to UK out, uh, in 2002. Worked in one of the hospitals in Kent for 14 years in different specialties, including intensive care and critical care. So then I moved on to a different role, quite an exciting role, I would say. It was called Specialist Nurse in Organ Donation or an Organ Transplant Coordinator job with NHS Blood and Transplant uh, in the southeast of England. So I was covering the entire southeast of England. So that job involves organizing organ donation and transplantation from the beginning to the end. So I did the job for nearly six years. So now I am settled in a, an advanced clinical practitioner job with Medway Urgent Care in Kent. Of course. Okay. And mm-hmm. in, the meaning, in the meantime, since I arrived in the UK, I was fortunate to do several education uh, opportunities, I would say. Managed to do my master's, managed to do my independent prescribing course, and also a PhD in education. Lovely. So, Wonderful. quite settled in my role at the moment. Yeah. Do you see that I am smiling yeah. as you are explaining it? Because mm. it's like I'm a fan, yeah. you know? I should have my pom-poms out right now. Like, <laughs> you are, you know, and you forgot the parts where yeah. you actually mm. created a university course mm. that is actually being studied by students all over the world mm. in St. George's University in the UK. Yeah. Honestly, it's your it's it's just I don't have words to <laughs> it's yeah. amazing. It's a, I'm a big fan. I'm a big Thank fan. You. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, get into it. My very first question for you is um well, there's this general stereotype yeah. that, you know, people who come from Indian, basically Asian communities, yeah. they ensure that their children study within the healthcare sector mm-hmm. or IT, yeah, you know? Because if you look around this country, mm-hmm. I was telling my wife the other day that, come to think of it, every pharmacy I go to, mm-hmm. I rarely see a white person there. Mm-hmm. It's either it's Asian or African. Mm-hmm. Is this stereotype true? I would say it is true because Asian communities spend a lot of emphasis on education. Uh, the first generation Asians in this country, in the UK, I don't think a majority of them never had an opportunity to go to university for a university graduation. Most of them worked in the farms or running taxis or worked in small shops, but they always dreamed about sending their children to much higher education possible. Again, in, in my case, my parents never had a chance to go to university. They only got maximum secondary school education. So, but they worked hard. Even uh, those days in India, we never had an opportunity to get an education loan to pay for a university fee. So he had to work seven days a week to pay for my university fee, which he did. Happily, he did. So, and again, the healthcare jobs and IT sector job is considered kind of a status symbol in our community, I would say. In the Asian community. In the Asian community, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's a social status, well-paid job. And it is a respectable job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So more people are inclined to encourage our children. Even I'm encouraging my children to think about these kind of healthcare jobs. That's kind of a uh, pattern is going on in the Asian community. Mm. Plus, again, I would say it is financially rewarding as well. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) And there is a common expectation for us to look after our elderly parents when we get older. 
So if you have a quite a good job and if you have a quite good job, uh, good savings, parents always think, okay, they'll be able to look after me when I get older. So you always look at sending the children to kind of a secure job. So the IT and healthcare always gave that kind of assurance for us to say, yes, this will give a decent income mm-hmm. and for us to look after our own family and our parents when we get older. Yeah, you know, as you're explaining, uh, it seems to me that we sort of have a bit in common with the African community. Mm-hmm. But for us, it's not really quite set in stone, like as in study IT yeah. or study within the healthcare sector. Mm-hmm. We know that we have lots and lots of Nigerian um, doctors of course, yeah. in this country. And I know quite a lot of us are also into IT. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, that that's really, you know, I've always wanted to ask someone from the Asian community mm-hmm. why this is so, mm-hmm. you know. And um, let's go, um, That that's a good segue into the next question. Let's talk coronavirus. Yeah. And why do you think, in your clinical opinion, mm-hmm. why do you think the BAME um, mm-hmm. community, why do you think we're mostly more susceptible to this virus mm-hmm. and why it affects us more? Okay. I mean, if you look at the, the total UK population, mm-hmm. it's around 15% of the total UK population is BAME. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the Department of Health figures on the number of deaths due to COVID virus, we can clearly see the people from the BAME community are quite disproportionately affected mm-hmm. with the number of deaths and the number of people who are actually being affected by the COVID situation. So mainly, if you look into the factors, is uh, there is a common theme emerging from the healthcare situation in the BAME community. Mm-hmm. There is a high risk for us to develop conditions like diabetes, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, uh, liver failure, kidney failure. These are quite common conditions which affects the Asian population and the black population compared to the white community. When you have these underlying health problems and when you get infected with a nasty virus like COVID, the management of the complications would be much higher. It will become really difficult for us to manage and these conditions will also give rise to so many other complications. So as a result, people with underlying health problems are more likely to die from a COVID virus infection. According to the statistics, uh, I would say the BME community are twice likely to die from COVID virus compared to a white Caucasian family. Um, There is one more factor from my own observation. Uh, the Asian and BME black families, we all, we are family oriented, much compared to the other communities. And some of them live in extended families. And some Asian families depend on the elders to look after the children. Mm-hmm. So as a result of uh, this overcrowding, close social interaction, the chances of isolate, self-isolation are quite limited that actually even putting patients from the community at risk of catching the virus and not being able to manage. So I think if you combine all these factors together, it actually gives us a theme why we are actually more affected by COVID. Mm. Do you think, because I was thinking mm. that enough, if you look at the NHS, mm. I would say, like you said, 15% of the total population of this country mm. are the BAME. Yeah. But if you look at the NHS itself as an entity, I think we have quite a lot mm. of you know BAME people mm. working within the NHS on the front line. Yeah. Which I would say is probably one of the reasons why it seems that quite a lot of them yeah. really got, you know, affected yeah. and died mm. from the COVID virus. Yeah. Would you agree? I'll certainly agree because the staff, if you look at the staff numbers within the NHS, a front-facing uh, workforce of NHS, a majority are represented by the BAME community. Mm-hmm. Nurses, doctors, even people who are actually in the frontline reception staff, laboratory staff dealing with the specimens, mm-hmm. they are constantly exposed. It's not just one exposure. Mm-hmm. It is a prolonged, repeat, constant, constant repetitive exposure mm-hmm. we are having to deal with this kind of exposure. So that in turn gives a more chances of us getting a virus infection 
compared to people from other background working in an office with a limited contact with patients of uh, suspected or confirmed covid mm. now going on from that mm. my next question i already know these things mm -hmm. but the reason why i invited yeah. you here yeah and uh, before i go for that i would really like to thank you for making the time mm -hmm. i know you're an extremely busy person for you know but for you to you know create that time mm. to come on the show it's my pleasure we really, really appreciate um now the question is as a BAME person mm. working in an hospital, what can one do? Because I think coronavirus is associated with very low immune system. Mm -hmm. And what can one do to boost the immune system? Because I think a, a big thing that so many BAME people don't know is the value of the vitamin D mm -hmm. and how it is mostly very low mm. uh, with BAME people. Can you shed some light, light on this? What is the, the importance of mm. vitamin D yeah. amongst the BAME and also boost one's immune system mm. in able to you know be able to combat or to be ready mm. for the COVID virus? Okay. I mean, vitamin D is, is otherwise called sunshine vitamin. Okay, It is essentially for bone health and skin health and bone and muscle health, essentially. Uh, it is actually produced in your skin when we are exposed to ultraviolet rays of the sunlight. In this country, you know, from October to March, April time, there is not much sunlight. And again, we got a tendency to run away from sunlight as well. We are not exposing enough to the sunlight. But again, it's not the exposure, it's the quality of exposure is very important because of her skin type. So for a white person, their skin is white mm -hmm. and the, the, the content of melanin, melanin is actually the pigment which actually gives your skin the color. So for us to get the same amount of uh, vitamin D produced by a white person, we have to have more exposure because of the protective effect of melanin. Mm -hmm. And we are not doing that enough. Again, dietary sources on its own sometimes may not be enough to boost up the vitamin D levels. And if you look at the number, according to the latest data, around four, per, four people out of five from the BME community are deficient in vitamin D. That is a shocking number. That's over 80 to 85% of the people in the BME community are deficient of vitamin D. Uh, with the benefits of vitamin D is always well known in the past. So lots of studies about vitamin D and its benefits. And it's always proved that vitamin D can help to treat or recover patients better with respiratory infections. And as we know, COVID is mainly affects your lungs. Yes. So if you boost up the vitamin D levels, it can enhance the recovery from a COVID infection. That's actually been... Uh, agreed by the Department of Health mm -hmm. and also by all other science bodies. Mm -hmm. That's why at the moment we are managing patients in intensive care with respiratory problem. Mm -hmm. We're replacing vitamin D for everybody. So we can actually copy that from that experience into a common daily, daily living. Yeah. So you can get vitamin D from any pharmacy. You don't need a prescription. If you can get a 400 international unit of capsule every day, that should be sufficient enough to build up your levels quick question yeah is there anything like overdose of vitamin d and like you said 400 mm. should yeah. be enough say somebody used 1000 too yeah because i've heard of someone say oh yeah, i'm so scared of covid like i use like mm -hmm. 2000 you know micrograms mm. of vitamin d capsules okay. every day mm. but is there anything like an overdose okay so when you take a capsule through your mouth you know always remember it has to be digested in your stomach mm -hmm. then has to be absorbed into your blood system mm -hmm. so the stomach acid will neutralize around 40 to 50 percent of whatever you take in terms of medicines so if you take 400 units the, your body will get less than 200 into the system so the remaining will be destroyed by your stomach so you only get a fraction of what you take orally so and again once it is actually metabolized and stored in your body it will get used up accordingly there is no concern about overdosing so if you get over but again these kind of things you need to have a blood test once every six months 
if you're deficient. I was coming to that. Yeah, if you're I was going to that down the line. Of course, of yeah. course. We'll talk about the blood test a bit later. Yes. So, and if you are extremely deficient, there is an option to take an intra, like an intramuscular injection of a vitamin D. That will give up a boost. Then, once your levels are up at a safe level, you can carry on taking oral tablets. But historically speaking, vitamin D is always considered to be best for building up your immunity and also to fight respiratory infections. And it's kind of reinforced its importance during this COVID pandemic oh, yes. by all the science bodies. Mm-hmm. And everybody is just supporting the evidence at the moment. Okay. So, remember the question I asked was, as a BAME person, mm. how can one boost yeah, immune system. Mm-hmm. We've talked about vitamin D being one of, the, if not the most important element. Yeah. yeah. So, what of other like I know I've heard of people taking uh, vitamin shots. Yeah. And you know I just want you to sort of shed a bit of light on this. Of course. Okay. So immunity, just not just building up immunity. It has to be your improvement of your overall health. So we have to take ownership of our own health, especially the people from the BME. They are mainly work-oriented because they have lots of other commitments, financial commitments, childcare commitments. They will be supporting families back home. So they constantly working, running from one job to another. So there's limited option for these people to look after their own health. As a result, as I explained in the in earlier on, they got high risk of developing these complications like diabetes, hypertension. But I work in a GP surgery as well. Mm-hmm. But the number of people who come for regular review of the medication and also for blood test and for uh, even just even just for blood pressure check, the number of people who don't even attend those kind of appointments is astonishingly high, especially from the BME community. Mm-hmm. So we need to take ownership of that. Yes, it's my health. It is my well-being. I'm going to attend those appointments. It is very important. I need to have a blood test every six months to see where I am standing for. I may need to have a blood pressure check every few months to see whether I am on the right medication. So you need to manage these these chronic conditions. Once you manage the chronic conditions, your overall health will improve. And that will improve, certainly improve your immunity. Say for example, if you have diabetes and your blood sugar levels are not very well controlled, when you have high amount of sugar in your blood system, you're automatically susceptible to get catching other infections, mm-hmm. simple infections like urine infection to other complex infections. Mm. High blood pressure, if it is not well managed, it can lead to stroke yeah. okay, or other cardiovascular problems. Uh, and if your blood pressure is not very well managed, it can cause damage to your kidney. So overall boosting of your chronic conditions and monitoring your healthcare is very important. That's the first step. Second step, you can think about uh, nutritional supplements. There is a way of taking supplements over the counter orally, but as I, as I explained earlier on, only a fraction will be absorbed into the system. And there is a new trend which started in America. Uh, the, all the big celebrity stars they are getting into getting intravenous drips with multivitamins and amino acids, which is proven to be I think quite popular. I started that in the UK. Well, the first time I saw that in the UK here was Simon Carroll. Of course, yeah. Where you know, without this drip just going into him, and I yeah. think, what is he on drugs or something? Yeah. And then years later, mm. I began to hear of it. Yeah. I've had it too. Yeah. I know that is one of the services that you. Um, yeah. yeah. So I would like you to sort of discuss. You know, how one can go about getting these shots yeah and um, because I know it's something you do yeah uh, can you explain to us mm. you know when you started this and where one can mm. you know, come to okay so I work as a health consultant as well as part of my uh, all other full-time jobs and work I do with a GP surgery because I realized there is a demand there is a need for the service for patients who have who are actually leading a busy lifestyle doesn't have time to go to the pharmacy and buy these vitamins and make sure they take them three times a day rigorously because they some of people work night shift day shift they keep forget things taking medication but the beauty of taking intravenous vitamins is almost nearly 100 percent of the vitamins will be absorbed into the system 
there is no loss in your stomach mm-hmm. so almost all of it will be absorbed into the system and the patient will benefit from all those medicines which is given to them so these are water soluble vitamins administered as a drip which can be given over an hour or two so and the patients can have once every 3 months or once every 6 months depending on the requirement and depending on their lifestyle mm-hmm. it's very popular among uh, the movie stars and also sports stars mm-hmm. but it's actually slowly coming into the general population as well because everybody is aware of the benefits of vitamins at the moment especially in this pandemic as well oh, yes yeah so if anybody needs more information i'm more than happy to help them i can offer them an impartial advice of what they need to do and more than happy to help them as well okay. do you have like a website or like a social media handle or phone numbers of course yeah, where, yeah. can you give them to us of course you yeah. also put them at yeah. the bottom of your screen yeah. when the show comes out okay so my website is called revivemedics.com all the information is there on the site and also my instagram page is also called revive medics so all the links we can supply on the interview nice nice mm-hmm. now moving on um uh, we were discussing something earlier before we started shooting and uh, because on one of our episodes we invited one of our very special guests mm-hmm. who actually runs an organization yeah. for sickle cell mm-hmm. and she was letting us know that in the BAME community just 1% mm-hmm. give blood donate yeah. blood and uh, after that episode uh, it became clear that so many of us mm-hmm. in the BAME community don't even know mm-hmm. the you know value the importance of donating blood you know towards you know helping other people and um, uh, based on your clinical knowledge mm-hmm. and experience would you say what what do you think is the stance of BAME people towards organ donation okay so i worked for nhs blood and transplant which is the organization in the uk controls and manages and facilitate organ donation transplantation and the blood donation in for all hospital settings mm-hmm. so i worked for them since 2014 until 2019 as a donor transplant coordinator in the southeast of england that job involves speaking to the families to get consent for organ donation once their loved one is declared brain dead mm. so in my experience when i speak to a family member from a bme community around only around 30% of the bme community members would say yes to donating their loved one's organs once their loved one is declared brain dead in an intensive care bed compared to 65 to 70% from other white caucasian background but the sad fact is if you look at the waiting list in the uk around 6700 patients on the waiting list to receive an organ but a majority of those patients on the waiting list are from the bme community and while i do this job for facilitating the donation transplantation one of the process is called tissue typing that means matching a donated organ with the recipient mm-hmm. an organ which is donated by a white person like a kidney or a liver will not be the best match for a person from a black or asian background because our tissue types are different so as a result these patients from a bma community would wait longer to receive a transplantation compared to the white person so if you transplant these organs will fail so as a result this is a vital soul vital resource they don't want to be wasted by transplanting onto somebody who is not a match mm-hmm. so as a result patients from the bma community uh um dying more while waiting for a transplant because that's not false coming because it's not enough people are donating why why is this so because she was saying my yeah. one of our guests in Chanel was saying that you know just 1% mm. and i'm thinking why do you think this is is it based on spiritual beliefs or cultural beliefs or mm. just uh, a lack of trust yeah it's a combination of factors first of all i would say lack of understanding of the process second one people are using religious and culture background as a way to get out 
even though none of the religions are against organ donation mm-hmm. all the major religions in the uk are supportive of organ donation and the third one i would say how people are worried how this process is carried out i was even asked by donor families how the person will look like after donation are you going to leave my family members tummy open after taking the kidney or liver even though i've explained to them okay this process organ retrieval process is a very dignified surgery which is carried out by the the most experienced transplant surgeons in the country yeah. in an operation theater and they will be uh, carried after the process carried out will be sutured out and it won't be visible from outside and most likely that organ would benefit someone from our own community itself so during uh, those conversations there are some interesting themes came out so that actually led me on to doing lots of campaigns within my community and also other minority communities to create an awareness of organ donation and blood donation mm-hmm. so if you look at the nhs organ donor register now we have an opt out system unless you want to be a donor you have to opt out but still it is not legally enforced that means the family will be consulted still the family will be the still the ultimate authority to say whether they want to donate or not so during that 5 uh, 6 years when i worked for organ transplantation i have campaigned with several communities encouraged them to sign up onto the nhs organ donor register and i managed to get around 3000 people from the minority community wow. onto the yeah, nhs nice. organ donor register wow yeah. that, that is that is amazing yeah. that is amazing so i mean even though the numbers look quite small mm-hmm. uh when you attend these events i was able to speak to so many people that managed to clear lots of misconceptions give out leaflets for them to think about so even though they haven't physically signed up onto the register they have taken away the important message for them to think about so and and at least when somebody asks them about organ donation or blood donation mm-hmm. when their loved one is uh, declared brain dead they would know yes this person has talked to me in the past so they will have some understanding mm-hmm. so hopefully i'm trusting that may lead on to More. making them a decision in favor of organ donation it, it, it does sounds like it's serious job that never hands though you know yeah. this awareness because i don't see the government doing enough mm. i know they're trying yeah. but they're not doing enough but you're saying that you got over 3000 families mm. to get on board with organ donation i would say that this has a round of applause thank mm. you yeah. thank you thank you thank you, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. you deserve your mbe <laughs> thank you thank you now moving on um uh, this is <clears throat> an issue that personally is very important to me because mm-hmm. i realized that a one of the biggest issues we have amongst the BAME communities is actually ignorance yeah and uh, i want to lack of information because the information is out there hmm. if you're willing to find it of course i think it's just based solely on ignorance mm. you know i start to be corrected and uh, because when people hear that word ignorance they think it's a big insult mm. which, which is not it's just a word that mm. says that you really don't know about this you don't care to find out yeah and now you know you're suffering from the consequences of not getting information on these mm. issues are you familiar with the avengers mm. do you know the avengers the movie yeah yeah yeah, Thanos yeah. and mm. all the rest mm. the infinity gauntlet that yeah. Thanos that mm. he wears mm. to control all that gives him so much power of course if i was to liken the infinity gauntlet mm. to men men mm. mainly for me it will be testosterone mm-hmm. because most men don't even people generally but mainly yeah. we're focusing on men now mm. because we're focusing on men's health yeah and uh, i think that most men quite a lot of men don't know the importance mm. of testosterone yeah growing up mm. if i hear that word the only thing i think of is that thing um my um, weight lifters injecting yeah. themselves mm. just to you know let them have weight mm. and now you know years later yeah 
I realized that it is actually the infinity gauntlet for men. Mm. And, you know, it, it works for a lot of things. Mm. It controls your sex drive, your bone mass, yeah. fat distribution, you know, red blood cell production. Yeah. And uh, I would like you, from your clinical point of view, mm-hmm. to discuss how important it is mm. to also keep an eye on your testosterone levels, mm-hmm. how to do so, yeah. and what to do if yeah. there's a deficiency. Okay. So, men and women, we all get older. Okay. And as we get older, there's lots of changes that are happening in our body. So, testosterone levels peak between the ages of 20 to 30. Then afterwards, the levels will slowly start to go down. For, me- for females... It is actually well recognized. They do get the same kind of changes, but not related to testosterone. They're on hormonal changes. They do get hot flushes, and they do have, they do become irritable. So they'll go to the GP, and the GP will send them for blood test, and they may start on some hormone replacement. They will recognize the men- perimenopausal symptoms early, and there is lots of options for managing the symptoms for women men also has got the similar symptoms when the testosterone level goes down but unfortunately what men does is men tend to hide those symptoms and they don't actually go and seek help that's one of the biggest factor they say okay these changes are happening in my body mm-hmm. or otherwise they may go to some website and get some other medication. Yeah, say mm-hmm. your testosterone is very low and it's affecting your sex drive. Yeah. They go for Viagra. Yeah. So they, they don't seek they don't seek expert help. So they just go to some internet sites and buy some temporary fix medications and get over it. But they're not realizing by doing that these symptoms is not the problems are not going away, but it's actually getting worse and worse. So, but in a, for men about mid-30s or even early 40s, what happens is when the testosterone level goes down, mm-hmm. one of the first things that happen is their mood will change. The mood changes, the concentration, they will become irritable, their sleep pattern will change, they start to gain weight, body changes will affect, their attention span will go down. Mm-hmm sleep disturbances, always fatigued. Patients may develop type 2 diabetes. How about depression? Depression, sleep, of course, it can develop uh, depression. Uh, they start to lose hair. And one other thing will happen is it will affect their sexuality. Uh, the quality of erections and the libido will be affected as well. Mm-hmm. And some, some men also develop something called gynecomastia. That means they will develop the man, man boobs. So, yeah, the man boost. So, so all these changes will happen to the body. So, people need to be aware of these symptoms which is happening in the body. So, if they're actually identifying these symptoms are happening to the body and they're actually in that particular age group, mm-hmm. I would advise them to go and speak to, the, speak to the GP as soon as possible. Explain to them, I'm having these symptoms. I would like to have a blood test including testosterone. GPs can never decline a blood test. So rather than going for the temporary fix like a Viagra. So once the blood test is done, if the testosterone levels are low, GPs tend to send the patients to an endocrinologist. Yes. Okay, the endocrinologist mainly does more investigations like SHBG, prolactin, lots of the extra blood test to see what actually the reason for the low testosterone levels and they make a treatment plan accordingly. So it is a complex and long process, but we have to be patient, especially in the COVID pandemic. They're not doing any uh, face-to-face appointments with endocrinologists. Most of them are remote consultations. So it might take longer before you even speak to an endocrinologist. But the first person to go to would be uh, your GP and ask for a blood test. Okay, and if the levels are low, there are lots of treatment options like testosterone gels or testosterone injections, which they will decide based on the recommendation from the endocrinologist. So, first of all, the reason why uh, it is quite important to investigate further, the testosterone is actually produced in your testicles, essentially. 
based on the message from your brain a part of the brain called hypothalamus which sends the message to another area called pituitary gland you might have heard about the pituitary gland yes. so hypothalamus to the pituitary gland and the pituitary gland creates some extra hormones which actually travel to the testes and the testosterone is produced so they can't just look at why the testosterone its levels are low they need to look back to see where the problem is then they have to make a plan accordingly they find the root cause root cause then treat accordingly so there is always help available treatments options are available if the best person to speak to would be the gp, GP. would be the gp All right um uh, let's start rounding up a little bit um at what age should people start sort of you know going to the gp mm. to request for blood tests say every six months at what age do you would you recommend okay so i mean when i work in the gp surgery when i look at patients historical records i would see some patients they haven't had a blood pressure check or even a blood test for over 5 years <laughs> and ask the ab right yeah so okay. when i ask them do you remember when was the last time you had a blood test they wouldn't even be able to know what <laughs> and when you look at that blood results 5 years ago mm-hmm. i can clearly see they were kind of borderline cholesterol borderline thyroid function mm-hmm. and borderline risk factor for developing uh, type 2 diabetes but they never bothered to go back and check again until is prompted by the gp i know the general practitioners are working under immense pressure at the moment mm-hmm. they's not been able to send reminders for blood tests for patients if they are well if they go and ask them okay. it, there is no option there is no facility or there is no capacity for a gp surgery to do that as i said earlier on we have to take ownership of our own health, our own health yeah. so once you reach around mid 30 for the mid 30s especially in the bma community you should have a blood test at least a year at least every year it doesn't need to be all the fancy blood tests mm-hmm. just your full blood count your kidney function your cholesterol levels vitamin d and your thyroid function that should be more than enough and a glucose level if you can if they can do five blood tests will certainly transform your life and then go back to again in a year's time to say oh, hello doctor updates i haven't had a blood test for 12 months can i have a blood test form then it will be looked into so once you have the track record of blood tests every year from the age of 35 absolutely the best option and if you have an underlying health problem like a diabetes or a heart problem or a liver problem or a kidney problem mm-hmm. that frequency should come down to once every 6 months do not leave more than 6 months especially because of blood pressure medications they are harmful to your body they are all chemical essentially all these medications are chemicals and they can cause damage to your kidney and the liver long term damage so as a result we need to be monitoring these blood tests and making sure they are not causing unnecessary harm to your organs and if they are changing your kidney function sometimes you will see your creatinine levels are going up your gfr will go down that is the amount of filtration which is happening in your kidney so as a result we may need to adjust the dose of medication so that your kidney or the, or the liver don't sustain unnecessary damage so it is very important so if you have an underlying health problem blood test every 6 months otherwise at least once every year you know what amazes me is mm. we live now in a country where yeah all these facilities are actually available yeah at your fingertips all it takes most mm. times is just a phone call mm. but people still especially the BAME communities mm. we just don't like to pay attention to our health. Mm. And the funny thing is, majority of mm. us come from countries where healthcare is not easily accessible or you have to pay money. Yeah, access it. True the nose. Mm. To get these facilities. Yeah. But why why do we not make use mm. of these amenities? Mm. I mean, we are very fortunate in this country. NHS is an amazing organization. Okay. free at point of care even though there are lots of people misuse it or abuse it mm-hmm. but it's free at point of care according to what was is actually the original theme when it was formed 50 or 50 years ago mm-hmm. it's still free if people doesn't know english they can't read and write english there are o- options of accessing leaflets in alternate languages they- if they want to get the information mm-hmm. 
facilities for um, blood tests all investigations are available and again people in our community are at high risk of developing uh, cancers breast cancer cervical cancer we send out invites for flu vaccinations the majority of the people from the bme won't even turn up for the program invitations they yeah. won't show cervical smear flu they won't, show. they won't show up so we have the facility <laughs> here so again going back to taking our own ownership of our own health and then when those things when the repercussions happen yeah like breast cancer and all those things yeah they turn around and blame the old woman back in their country yeah they call them witches and wizards yeah that have sent attacks to them mm. spiritual attacks mm. you know i think as uh, members of bme we need to learn to take more mm. responsibility of course of our own health and for mm. our health yeah and um uh, last question i promise yeah i'll push on the off sitting now <laughs> how does it feel walking you know walking in the front line in the icu mm. with the covid uh, patients how do you feel pressure or how do you mentally prepare yourself going into mm. into work every day working in a critical care unit is a challenge because at the end of the day you have a patient on a ventilator who is sedated and paralyzed on multiple medications they are on three or four organ failure supported by different organ or um, before a complex of medi- uh, ventilators mm-hmm. and other machineries mm-hmm. they are on a ventilator to support their breathing two or three inotopes which are the medication to support their blood pressure medication to uh, support the kidney function and most these patients are on a dialysis machine to keep going on nearly 100% oxygen flow combination of antibiotics so you are on your toes when you're working with these kind of patients they are called level 3 patients level 3 patients means they have three organ failure but in this covid scenario we are seeing more than three organs are failed for those patients simultaneously too, simultaneously at sometimes and they are actually the the most vulnerable patients in the hospital and the resources are extremely extremely thin at the moment in terms of human manpower we have all the missionaries in every single at you but the hospitals we work for a lot of staff members are of sick with covid so we are struggling in my current employment scenario i'm got redeployed to i redeployed to work in intensive care from next week onwards mm-hmm. so i have taken up the challenge because that is my background so i can do whatever i can help oh, yes. those patient those patient groups with my skills in intensive care so we need the resources we all need to pull together oh, yes. to support these patients but these patients are actually because the visiting is restricted previously when the patients are recovering they used to have the family members around mm-hmm. one of the major things is when these patients are actually on a ventilator for so many number of days they're actually when the patient wakes up they're actually waking up in a kind of delirious situation that means they don't have an idea what's going on they've been in a clinically induced coma clinically induced coma they have a section of their memory completely wiped out yeah. they wake up with a complete delirium and intensive care is one area they have bright lights 24/7 there is no turning off lights mm-hmm. so the patients don't have a clue whether they are at 10 o'clock in the morning or 9 in or the night or even in heaven if i open my eyes and there's white lights everywhere okay. and then i see it not in i'm like is, is this heaven are you an angel i mean it's quite quite funny as well i mean i would say it's one of the jokes shared to me by one of my colleagues a patient who woke up uh, in an intensive care unit he was surrounded by foreign nurses foreign nurses i would say uh, nurses from philippines and also from india this patient started shouting taking me back to england <laughs> because he didn't realize oh my god everywhere he look is like, the nurses and staff diverse places okay. yeah diverse person i mean diversity is a strength of nhs workforce yes. oh yeah i mean that is actually i mean even though that, that is funny that actually reflects how many staff members are actually in the front line mm-hmm. managing these patients oh yes it is our strength diversity and we have got a extremely skillful task force of employees working for nhs mm-hmm. and and we are fortunate to be working for this wonderful organization as well yeah
Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, uh, I have a question before you round up. Uh, Is that all right? Seems our producer has a question <laughs> for our guest. What's your question? All right, basically, you know, in terms of um, getting the BME community on board, all this test that we've talked about, testosterone, um, cancer screening, you know, whatever screening that anyone approaching the age of 40, 50, 60, you know, should be, you know, doing. Mm. Um, I feel like administrators can do more. And if there's anything in place, I'd like you to let us know mm-hmm. as well. In terms of, you know, ladies, when they when they approach 40, they get invitation for smear test, mm. for um, cancer screen, I mean, for diabetes. My my partner has gotten that, she's about 38, you know, that mm. she's gotten about four or five letters in the last one year or two years, you know. Mm. So I have not gotten anything, I'm older than I, mm. you know, so I've not gotten anything like that. So even if I am one of, you know, the BAME community we're talking about that don't chase off this test, mm. if I get a reminder, don't you think that would mm. be helpful to like motivate me to mm. do that? Because what can you enlighten us about? Okay. I mean, going back to the regular health checkups, yeah. as we explained earlier on, at the moment, all these checks and everything is initiated and facilitated by the GPs. And I didn't realize how the GP service is functioning in this country, how overstretched they are. Mm-hmm. We get 10 minutes for a consultation, mm-hmm. and most GPs will specify one problem per appointment. Yep. That's the same thing we all encounter. As soon as you walk into GP surgery, there's a notice on the door, yep. one problem per appointment. Mm-hmm. But what government has introduced something called COF, Quality Outcome Framework. So that actually makes uh, GPs to take responsibility for their own population. That means we have to achieve certain um, percentage on cervical screening, and, and every patient with the diabetes has to have a blood test or a blood pressure check at certain times. Mm-hmm. They have to have a medication review every year. These are all part of the objectives which is actually set by the government. And the GP surgeries are paid incentives based on the performance. And they, it is, they, they are mandatory tasks which are introduced by the government. Since those frameworks are introduced, I would say there are more options that are available for GPs to let the patients know. So when I do a consultation in a GP practice, what I normally do is we'll get a little pop-up on the side of the screen to say this person is due for a blood pressure check, this person is due for an asthma review, this person is due for a diabetic review. So now we have a system where we can send SMS reminders straight to the patient's forms. So we'll click on the link to say, hello, mister, you are due for an asthma review. Please ring the surgery, make an appointment. One click, message you will send to the patient. Oh, you complete a survey on your asthma. Asthma. Asthma review or diabetic review, mm-hmm. blood pressure check. That message will go straight to the patient. That way is working well, but only if we have a correct mobile number in our GP records. Yeah. GP records. So whenever we the patient rings, we ask them, okay, is that your correct number? Otherwise, make sure you have the correct information. So, and again, for men and women, we have an over 50, or 50 health checkup plan. We all, everybody will be invited into the surgery or well man's clinic. So we'll have a blood pressure check, have a full blood test done. Mm -hmm. But now, most of the GP surgeries are not performing uh, face-to-face consultations and most of them are over the telephone all those things are actually quite limited at the moment but there are options available all these facilities are available but GP a one-man GP managing a caseload of 7,000 or even 10,000 pa- 10,000 patients there is no resource for a GP to send reminders to everybody. Yep. But, but we live in a technological age. Technological you know, things are getting calendars can send automatically. Yeah. Things are getting things are getting better. The SMS system is working well and mm-hmm. I use that every day. And if patients when they come for appointments, again some of them won't turn up for the appointments. One missed appointment is a national wastage. Again. Send them an appointment. Okay, you have missed an appointment. Make sure you turn up for the next appointment. 
And again, when you are actually due for a blood test, I normally say, okay, I have created a blood test form for you. Please collect from the reception and make an appointment for blood test. And you will see bundles of blood test forms still waiting to be claimed. So we're using all those resources, send options, technology is being well used. The, most of the GP surgeries are actually moved on to a system called EMIS, which is a much modern system that is an easy way of communicating with the patients. SMS system aware, still relying on paper letters as well, but through postage. But we're moving away from that. Let's let's be honest. Yeah. It's just back to what we said earlier. Yeah. Your health yeah. is your responsibility. Yeah. Your health is your responsibility. Mm. If you've come from a country, third world country, where you have absolutely no access to good healthcare mm. and the semi-good healthcare you have available, you have to pay through the nostrils for. Mm. And now you're in a country where all these things are within your, mm. you know fingertips yeah you just need to ask do not wait yeah. for someone to come remind you yeah you should be the one just that bible passage ask and you shall receive literally this is what it was created for yeah you have to ask mm. and then we carry out a follow-up yeah so you are paying as an employee you're paying a fair amount of your salary mm -hmm. into the national service yeah. for your health care so you have you are you have got all right to so receive the full health care. Just ask them. Yes, I need a, I need an investigation. Okay. Say for example, for men, we have to do uh, I mean testicular self-examination. How many men do that? Once you reach a certain How age, many? again takes two minutes when you are in the shower. Oh, just do, do you want someone to remind you of that to, to check your own your own your own, your own yeah, testicles? Yeah. <laughs> To take to take two minutes to examine your testicles, and if you find any abnormal levels, then you go out and chase it up. Same for females. Yeah. Self-examination of their breast. Take two minutes. Yeah, you can help do, your wife. Yeah, do it. Uh, uh, do it regularly. Mm -hmm. Ask for help. Okay, I need my investigations. Thank you. Facilities are there. Just use them. Use them. That's all. Use them. Shibu, thanks for coming. How you be spending Christmas? For me, yeah, I know I will be at work. I'm working Christmas Eve, Christmas, okay, Boxing Day. <laughs> so I don't know about you. How are you spending this Christmas? I'm also planning to work all day on Christmas Day. Yeah. But I'm off. Maybe I see you. Won't you like that? Now I'm working in Medoc on that Christmas Day. All oh, right, Christmas Day. So here. yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for coming. I really, personally, I really enjoyed this episode. I am sure that someone, someone, someone watching out there would have you know, gained a bit of information. Thank you. And uh, we appreciate you finding the time to come. Okay. And we are going to give you another round of applause. Yeah. Thanks for watching. This is the last episode for this year. Um, uh, enjoy responsibly. And we wish you a Merry Christmas. And we hope that 2021 will bring the aliens. Okay, <laughs> stay safe out there and okay. see we'll meet next year. Bye. Thank you. Ah, oh, done it, done it, done it. Ah. <laughs> oh.